Hello, and thank you for joining us on Rocky Mountain Institute's podcast, where we will explore emerging and innovative pathways to transform global energy use to create a clean, prosperous, and secure low-carbon future. I'm Todd Zaransky, a marketing manager at RMI. Well, RMI just wrapped up its sixth annual eLab Accelerator, a facilitated workshop of leading industry actors to develop, implement, and spread new solutions that enable a rapid transition to a clean, secure, prosperous, and equitable electricity system. We recorded two podcasts in beautiful Sundance, Utah, on the sidelines of Accelerator to bring some participant perspectives into a discussion of an event that we at RMI are so proud of. This first episode is with someone who has my greatest admiration for her intelligence, dedication, and service to a cause she holds dear, the one and only Eleanor Stein. Eleanor is a professor at Albany Law School and at the State University of New York at Albany, and was a longtime administrative law judge at the New York State Public Service Commission. She then went on to serve as project manager for the Reforming the Energy Vision initiative at the New York PSC. As part of the REV leadership team, her responsibilities included representing REV publicly, coordinating the many aspects of the REV project, managing the REV public participation process, and developing the environmental justice agenda there. Eleanor has also been a longtime faculty member of RMI's Electricity Innovation Lab, or ELAB. Her areas of interest include public policy dispute resolution, mobilizing public participation in energy matters, and climate justice. Eleanor was gracious enough to make time for a short conversation with me during a break at Accelerator, and I'm bringing it to you now. With no further ado, here's my conversation with Eleanor Stein. I first met Rocky Mountain Institute when I was the project manager for the Reforming the Energy Vision Initiative in New York State in uh, 20, from 2013 to 2015 when I left the agency. And RMI came in as uh, a strategic partner, in the words of the then PSE chair, R.J. Zibelman, and really worked inside the agency with the leadership in developing and crafting a vision for how to really profoundly change the way we did energy in New York in terms of moving from a centralized energy system to a distributed system, in terms of qualitatively improving the proportion of renewable resources that were in our system, and in terms of the values of engagement with customers and with the public and with low-income communities and those who are generally pretty voiceless in situations like that. So I began working very closely with several RMI teams, and shortly after I left the agency, RMI asked me to join the advisory board for eLab, which I was honored to do. And since then, I've been coming to eLab Accelerator and eLab Summits and faculty and board meetings. Mm-hmm. And give me a sense, if you would, about how this work has evolved and your observations of you know, the teams we've had here, the, the types of discussions we've been supporting, how that's changed over time. The method that's been devised for Accelerator, and I think more broadly the RMI facilitation model and and dispute resolution model is really extraordinary in my experience. And I've been doing conflict resolution work for 30 years and have studied with and worked with many leaders in that field who practice different schools of thought about how you do it. And every time I come here, I feel that RMI has a line into some kind of alchemy where they will work with a group of people who are perhaps working on a common project from very, very different and often conflicting perspectives. So this is a a group that we would describe as 
normally, um, normally um, adversarial parties, generally adversarial parties in their life and work. And they come here, they may be working on a project together, it might be a project of some magnitude, and you might have a utility, uh, a government representative, someone from the finance world, uh, several community groups, low-income representatives, and everyone is looking at a particular project and working on it. And maybe they have reached a certain kind of impasse back home in their work. And they come here, and RMI has devised a set of tools to both make everyone feel at home and welcome and equal participants, and also help people arrive at a place where they can see their common ground. And some of those tools involve games and exercises and trust, uh, play role-playing. And uh, but, but at the end of a few days, people have actually coalesced generally as a team and have come to realize that they don't necessarily have to be adversaries when they go home. And they often come out in the end with a product which is a vision of how the pro their project can move forward. And then they have to go home and sell their illumination to their higher-ups in whatever their organization is, and that can be a very difficult task, but they do very often reach a higher level of agreement and understanding of their project. I'm curious, too, if you could frame up how... Are, are we talking about the same things at this year's Accelerator that we were talking about at Accelerator five years ago, or have the topics evolved, or perhaps the interventions in how we're uh, moving forward and addressing some of these challenges in the industry, has that evolved? I think it has evolved, and I can mention two areas, and they're areas that are of deep concern to me in my work. The first is that I think one of the greatest crises, perhaps the greatest crises and challenge that faces us as a society and us as a species and us as a planet concerns the, the inc increasing damages and our increasing understanding of the devastation that's going to be wrought by climate change on our societies and on many, many species, of course, and has been wrought on many species. And every year, our understanding of how deeply our use of fossil fuel and the uh, greenhouse gas emissions have already set in motion probably irreversible processes, which will be unfolding for our lifetimes and future generations. And and yet, it is still true that there are measures that we can take and that we must take to modify the impacts as much as possible, and especially in terms of the impacts on most vulnerable populations, both globally and in our society. So when I first came in 2015, climate change was on people's minds, but it certainly wasn't the core of the agenda by any means. And at this meeting, I'm very heartened to see how much it is at the core of really everyone's thinking. And also, several of the groups here are working on one particular issue from different perspectives, and that's the issue of how do we solve the problem of our use of fossil fuels to heat our buildings, to heat our homes, to cook our meals, and so on, and for industrial processes. And a lot of thought and work has gone on here and elsewhere to decarbonize our generation of electricity. We have the technology, we know how to do it. The real question is, are we going to have the political will as a society to really do it? But we've solved all the big problems, I, in my view. But a far less attention has been paid to the issues of, of heating and cooking and cooling. And I think 
we don't have an answer today in place uh, at scale to answer the question, if, we're, if I'm not going to be using gas to heat my home, what am I going to be using? What if there's a polar vortex, which there has often been in my community? What are we going to do if we can't eat with gas? And clearly, the people here and the groups here have devised uh, very creative and very important and economically viable solutions to those problems. And I think the real challenge now is to get those in place, to build them, and to massify them in terms of people's understanding, even in the field, that this can be done. So in New York, where I work, there are several pending proposals to add gas infrastructure to New York State. And every piece of infrastructure for gas that we put in place will be with us for 60 or 70 years. And that is not a viable set of choices, given what we know about the future. And I think right here is the place where those solutions are being generated. Mm -hmm. So, Eleanor, you were highlighting the uh, electrification focus here at ELAB, which is, is new for us. And Bruce Nillis, who's a new managing director at RMI, is actually going to be establishing a, um, a building's electrification vertical within RMI uh, starting in about a month's time. And he actually had an editorial piece in the New York Times yesterday titled, Why Your Gas Stove Needs to Go. And uh, can you talk a bit about what you found so compelling about that article? The highest emitting countries in the world, I think it's the 20th, 20 highest emitting, have been engaged in a, proce a process called the uh, Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project. And the idea is to have the high emitting societies design actual methods to decarbonize their societies as a whole in order to meet their obligations under the Paris Agreement under the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and also their ethical obligations to the future. And so for the United States, a lot of work has been done on that, and it's very clear that the path for the United States is to decarbonize the way we make electricity and then electrify the rest of our society. And so in that context right now, as I said, we have really solved the problem of decarbonizing electricity. Not that we've done it, but we are doing it and we know how to do it. And it's cost effective to do it. So we have yet to really tackle wholesale the question of how to use electricity in other sectors, and in particular in the sector of home heating, home cooling, uh, cooking, and other, um, other fields where we now rely entirely on fossil fuels. So there's been very little published and very little written for the public about what alternatives are to the methods of heating and cooking that we now use. And so the Nellis piece uh, was remarkable because it laid out, first of all, just, first of all, it laid out the case against gas as a cooking and heating fuel in terms of the home health aspects, the danger to human health, especially to children, from natural gas itself and also from other additives that are delivered to your home, not only to your stove, but also to your air quality. And in particular, the article was remarkable because it pointed out the particular impact that these toxins have on low-income communities, communities of color that may have less modern heating and cooking appliances, have leaky houses, and are susceptible to these 
environmental insults at a much higher level than more wealthy communities. So I think it was extraordinary for those reasons. Mm -hmm. And it was also extraordinary because I think it spoke to a lot of my friends who fancy themselves gourmet cooks and <laughs> love their six burner wolf stoves. And uh, they've been put on notice that this thing is going to go. And actually that electric induction cooking is a great replacement is actually better as well as cleaner and really is becoming more and more economical. So I think it was a tremendous contribution. Yeah. I think, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a nuance that, that Bruce highlighted is, is that, that the gas stove is going to be a key to this transition because people, generally speaking, don't have an objection to a more efficient furnace or a more efficient refrigerator um, and, and you can you can get rid of your gas lines in your house if you didn't need to have a stove but because people love their gas stove so much um, that's going to be a key <laughs> key component of this transition is making sure that we can solve for that piece of the equation I agree with you and I think that it is key although I think in New York for example where I work the gas heating problem is going to be a very difficult one to solve and mm -hmm. it's a climate that has very, very cold winters, up to and including polar vortexes. Mm -hmm. And so New York City passed a law 10 years ago requiring all the buildings in New York City that used very dirty number six fuel oil as air heating mm -hmm. medium to switch over either to a lighter grade oil or to natural gas. So there have been literally hundreds of thousands of new natural gas installations put in in New York City in the last five to 10 years. Wow. And so, and buildings have been retrofitted for this new technology. So approaching even tenants, but certainly building owners now and saying, we have a great idea. We're gonna retrofit your building again and it's gonna cost this many hundreds of thousands of dollars is a very, very difficult sell. Mm -hmm. And it's a difficult sell for the users because they just went through this and they thought they'd be okay. So. Clearly, there all the alternatives, district heating, geothermal uh, heat pumps, all you know, other forms of electric heating are all very attractive. But I think it's going to be tough sell because natural gas has a real stranglehold on that market. Mm -hmm. Hey, you're right. Well, I would be uh, not doing my job if I did not talk to you about your work serving underserved communities and, and being a voice for those who are underrepresented in our dialogue and our discussions, policy debates. Can you talk to me a bit about your history in this space and um, what, I suppose, how you see uh, the LMI community plugging into this debate on the future of our energy system? And then finally, if I could uh, ask you how you see that, that focus being reflected here at ELAB. I think it's being more and more recognized that this is a really critical issue. So you have I think nationally, it's something like 60% of the population is, by any margin, any standards, considered low income. Mm -hmm. That's the majority of people wow. in our country. In New York State, it's about that, that high a proportion as well. And so trying to solve these problems, which are, we're talking about re-engineering some fundamental aspects of our society, simply on the question of numbers, it can't be solved without solving the problems for those communities. Mm -hmm. And it also can't be solved without engaging those communities. And fortunately, there has grown up in the last few years a very robust climate justice movement 
led by members of those communities. Mm-hmm. And, and they have been many of the frontline advocates that have forced a lot of the changes that we've seen on the government end. So that's the good news. The bad news is that our decision-making on issues of energy tend to be, tends to be processes that make it very difficult for low-income communities or communities of color to participate. So a friend of mine who leads the New York City Environmental Justice Alliance, Eddie Bautista, always says, hey folks, if we're not at the table, we're probably on the menu. Mm-hmm. And so his organization and many others in New York have been really fighting and have made tremendous changes in terms of community representation and community voices being you know, very significantly and powerfully at the table. But it's an ongoing struggle. Mm-hmm. It's not one. And I think uh, I've been in several discussions at ELAP this round on exactly that issue uh, with many people here. And I've done two sessions open to anyone who wanted to come. I had a lot of participants. And we did a role play about community group trying to get in the door at a utility or in the door of government to have their voices heard. And I think this is top of mind for a very large number of people here. But there's also a second component to this. So the first is participation. But the second is the content, the substance of the policies that we're devising and that government is devising and the strategies that utilities are devising. And it's urgent that these policies make the needs and interests and views of low-income communities and communities of color central to the policies that they are adopting. So on the one hand, you need the participation, and on the other hand, you need the substance. So how is our redesign of the utility system meeting the needs of low-income customers in a way that the current system doesn't? How are we designing climate solutions that are affordable and that engage and that are accessible to low-income communities. And that's a big challenge, but it's a challenge that I see ELAB taking on, you know, full tilt and uh, eyes open. And I'm very hopeful that some of the solutions that will be devised here can be put to use in the community, you know, with a running start. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about how uh, the REV process integrated uh, the views and the needs of uh, underrepresented communities? I'd say it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is a problem that anybody has solved, and we may never solve it as a society because the underlying re- realities of our society are so skewed against low-income people and against people of color. However, I think New York has made an honest effort to find ways to ensure participation or encourage participation. And there are many, many advocacy groups that have grown up in the last few years because of RAV have come into motion and said, this is something we can wrap our minds around. These are issues about moving generation into our communities. We want to own solar facilities. We want to own microgrids. We want to control them in the community. And so on that level, they are really taking on the current model and challenging government and the industry to um, find a way to integrate their contributions to the energy system. And I'll just give you one example. So there are some community groups that have developed a model to uh, monetize what they see as a community asset, which is the community advocates work in low-income housing, and they have for 10 years. They are trusted by people in in those housing developments, Mm -hmm. unlike government or the utilities or their landlords. 
and they're there every day. And they said, we can mobilize tenants to modify or reduce their energy usage at certain times of day, mm-hmm. in certain quantities, and actually create a huge savings by reducing demand. This is a, this is a, a constituency that uses a lot of energy, partly because their housing stock is so inefficient. Uh, and um, we can figure out the technologies and the verification and things like that with you, the utility. But we want to sell you our demand reduction asset, which is just as much of an asset as a new group of solar panels, right? You can mm-hmm. reduce demand and you can increase generation. And, um, and then we would like to give, we'd like you to give our tenants a little credit card-like thing, even if they get a dollar a month or $3 a month, that's a piece of equity in the system that those tenants will have. And they will respond to that signal very enthusiastically. Mm-hmm. So this, as a concept, it's a real groundbreaking concept because who would think people in the projects <laughs> would have a key yeah. in an area that's very constricted and constrained in terms of electricity? they could hold the key to making the system work. But they do. Yeah. And they can, that can be organized. It's a great idea. Isn't it? It's a great concept. Last question for you. Yes, I know you, you have to run soon, and you've been very generous with your time. If, if I'm someone who's thinking about applying to come to an eLab Accelerator or an eLab Summit, what should I be thinking about, and how could I be effective in a setting like this? I think the most important thing, and this is really brought home to me in this particular summit, uh, uh, Accelerator, is um, you have to have the right group of stakeholders. Because when you're home, you can get together with everybody who agrees with you and who's working with you. Mm -hmm. And you do. And you have community meetings, or you have board meetings, or you have your sector meetings if you work in in the business sector. But the real genius of Accelerator is that if you can get the principal stakeholders in a meaningful project to come here, you have an opportunity to employ that RMI alchemy that I spoke about earlier Mm -hmm. to really reach a higher level of understanding and even sometimes consensus with parties that you're traditionally adversarial with. If you just come with the people who agree with you, you can do good work and you can have a wonderful time, but you can't make the kind of breakthrough that eLab has really set out to accomplish. That would be my suggestion. Think hard about Don't think about the people you like when you're thinking about who to bring. Think about the people you don't like, who you disagree with the, the most, and get them there. Well, thank you for your time, Eleanor. Thank you, and thank you for all your pleasure. contributions to ULAB. Well, I love coming here. <laughs> <laughs> That's my favorite thing. <laughs> thank you. Okay, great. To our listeners, thank you for joining us today on Rocky Mountain Institute's podcast. As a nonprofit organization, our work is made possible by bold partners and the support of people like you. We welcome your suggestions on what you'd like to see covered in future podcast episodes. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook, as well as at RMI.org. Stay tuned for a new episode of RMI's podcast coming to you soon. And thank you again for listening.